I've been away, and one of the places that I went to, well, in the southwest, is Bath and oh, Wells yeah. and Lake Hawk Abbey, uh, all of which are film locations. That's not the reason why I went, but um, Wells, of course, as you know, is the location for... Uh, is it Hot Fuzz? It, it is indeed. Um, and obviously Bath is looking glorious at the moment um, in high definition for the TV cop show McDonald and Dodds. Yes, it is. So, I mean, it's uh, just ideal for anything to do with Jane Austen, I would say. Laycock Abbey, probably the most famous production there has been Harry Potter. All right, all right, big hitter. With the cloisters and the big cauldron and... I can't remember if they've done any Bridgerton there, um, but it wouldn't surprise me. But yes, that is ideal. It's a real mishmash of anywhere between... It's about 800 years old, really. Anywhere between that and uh, Neo-Gothic Revival. So oh, well, it, I do I do like the way, um, you know, film and TV production companies, that adaptability of, of using places. Um, so my brother used to live in Woodstock, in, in Oxfordshire, right next to like Blenheim Palace. Um, they were the neighbours. And um, old Woodstock Town Hall doubled up as the, uh, well, the titular train station from Ricky Gervais's directorial debut, um, Cemetery Junction. So mm -hmm. um, they, they kind of like transformed it into a train station. Um, in the Harrison Ford adventure, Hanover Street, um, regional Nazi Supreme Headquarters <laughs> in France. Um, and, of course, it's in the Titfield Thunderbolts as well, where they're, where they're smuggling the engine away. He could have done tours, couldn't he, your brother? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I, mean, I mean, Woodstock's a tiny place. Um, you know, it's very picturesque, and there's some lovely pubs there, the Star Inn and the Bear. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just one of those places that it just is viewed as all right yeah we're going to we're going to to use this but like i said to have that adaptability of being just a a small countryside town hall and then nazi headquarters <laughs> lake hawk abbey is i mean the national trust appears to own the whole town so wherever you go it feels like a slightly it's a national trust version of the village in the prisoner all right, all right how sinister yes it, it has got a slightly sinister feel or a bit like Murdersville and the Avengers, or All right, okay. one of those particular places. Right, that's enough pre-rambling, I think. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Rose Tinted Black and White Television. I'm Guy Morgan. I am joined by the expert in all things 60s television, David Newell. Who has I've been? Stop waving. I've got to stop waving. I, I should say hello. I must stop waving. Otherwise, <laughs> it's it's on the wireless. And Dave today, friend of the show, Mark Riffert, reminded us about the passing of John Bates, who is probably best known well, for his costume designer. Yes, yes, as the costume designer, particularly for the Avengers, which was kind of his big break. In fact, it was such a big break that when they were moving in to color, he was so busy. They had to get other people to fill in for him. And uh, I thought it'd be quite a useful opportunity to uh, look at 50s, 60s style, uh, possibly moving into the 70s. You're an expert on Roger Moore. 
Those are strong words. I have a keen interest in Roger Moore's fashions, so we might talk about the persuaders. Yeah, because he 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 designed his his own clothes um, for that, and that was you know a, a, a rarity at the time, um, like the late sixties, early early seventies. It was perhaps that very early aspect of um, stars of TV shows um, putting themselves forward to to perhaps direct an episode, which which at that stage was still quite a rarity. You know, Patrick McGowan. Um, was was doing it. Roger Moore had already had you know a couple of goes at the Saint, but that idea of of having someone you know the star of the show directed can you do two things at once uh, was was kind of a rarity. It was was expanding, um, but even rarer still would be to go to your producer, you know Monty Berman or Dennis Spooner or someone, and just go, excuse me, I've got some ideas for some clothes I'd like to wear. And yeah, for for the persuaders, obviously Lord Brett Sinclair, um, he got his number. Um, did Rog have the idea of yes, I know exactly not only how this act, how this character sounds, but what they look like, they dress, um, and yeah, you know, uh, carte blanche. Yes, it doesn't always work. Um, the first Mrs. Peel, Elizabeth Shepherd. Uh, there are some rather magnificent pictures of her um, colour photographs of her on location for shooting The Town of No Return, where she has this red leather outfit with a hood and a scarf um, looking slightly remote and not quite comfortable i would say in in the pictures Um, there can be there can be um performers who who may may feel that no i don't think my my character would wear a duffel coat (laughs) i don't think i don't think they'd wear crocs um i think they that they'd make a statement elsewhere Uh, so yes you know sometimes actors can be um a little bit not necessarily fussy but maybe it may be revealing uh, perhaps some insecurities around what they what they feel that their character um would would wear but there are other times um when it does appear that there was maybe some some off camera um disharmony and the uh you know costume designer um costume coordinator is kind of getting their own back um by making them wear wear this the one oh what was the one the other week um about the arrow Oh, the arrow of God! Yes, you the said that uh, Ronald Lee Hunt had been badly treated. Yes, yeah, he—he, he, I don't know what he must have done to cross the production team. Uh, obviously, because they'd be a cohesive whole unit. You take one of us on, you take all of us on, and that idea of right, I, I know I'm going to make you wear. Um, I noticed I've been um, why I've been doing this. I don't know. Maybe I need more direction in my life. Um, I've been catching up with the cinema of um, British exploitation, Pete Walker, um, who did um, films like Schizo, films um, such as The House of Mortal Sin. Uh, And I was watching The Comeback last night, which is from the late 70s. It's um, American crooner Jack Jones um, being driven slightly mad. And it's also got Pamela Stevenson in it and David Doyle from um, Charlie's Angels. 
Uh, and we kind of have an idea of what, what Jack Jones's character is like. But at one point, he's asked to wear an anorak that makes him look as if he's auditioning for Cool Runnings because it's the, the, the colours of the Jamaican flag. Uh, and you think, that's, 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 a, that's a bold move. Was that an attempt to tip him over the edge? <laughs> I think it may have been. Yeah, I, I always thought the, the dinosaur uh, drama that ITV used to do with Dougie Henschel, I always thought there seemed to be some kind of um, vindictiveness in the coats he was asked to wear. Dreadful coats. Really, really cool. Yeah, terrible. It was primeval, it was called, wasn't it? Primeval, yes. Uh, the, the coats um, were those sort of um, kind of not good enough to sell in CNA. And they would be um, kind of a, perhaps like a light grey, but with light blue patches as well, or panels. He really seemed at odds, odds with it. As soon as you could take those coats off to act in a scene, he seemed a lot happier. Yes, yes. I suppose they might have had some kind of rationale if they were to distract dinosaurs. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 you know, the, the idea of, you know, 60s when, you know, 60s design, 60s fashion, uh, you know, Carnaby Street, Mary Quant, all of that kind of thing, all of a sudden coming um, into the fore and, and, and wanting to capture some of that, wanting to capture some of that glamour, I guess, in film and TV. Yeah, I mean, let's um, let's use the A word, the Avengers, okay. <laughs> because this has been inspired by John Bates, who obviously designed Diana Rigg, Mrs. Peel's clothes in the black and white series of the Avengers when it moved to film. But things had already started uh, before then. If you go right back to the beginning, the first few episodes of the studio series with Ian Hendry, apparently Sidney Newman, who knew Patrick McNee from back in Canada, called him into his office and said, oh, this Steve character, he's a bit boring. And so Patrick McNee was a bit put out because he felt he'd been doing uh, quite well, but he thought, how am I going to make him more interesting? So he went away and he had kind of four role models. My dad was used to lean over the garden gate. He had a beautiful cravat, a pearl pin, a beautifully cut sort of clothes. And he was a dandy. So was the Scarlet Pimpernel. So was my commanding officer in the Navy. His name was Bussy Carr. He came from the Carr's Biscuit family. And he would stand on the bridge with his white thing, his DSC and his cap and all that. And I used to think he was the most romantic creature going. So I think I combined those sort of romantic images the bowler hat is something that somebody goes to business uh, in the city in. But I remember we used to wear bowler hats with a thing in the head uh, 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 riding. But during this period of time, you would wear a bowler hat. I, for, I don't know for what reason. They used to put a flat iron on the side and curl it up. And in the top, they put a thing in case you fell off and broke your head. And it was that simple, because I came from that background. And, of course, Ralph Richardson in Cue Planes. All of that. So then he... He had the velvet collar and the jacket, the rolled-up umbrella, the bowler hat, the carnation, all of that. Walked into the studio without actually having cleared it with anyone, and Ian Hendry just swore. <laughs> Possibly something like WTF. But it seemed to work, and Sidney Newman apparently said, well, at least it's different. Yeah, because I would imagine up until that point, a lot of the TV series, everyone, you know, the heroes or the the, you know, the protagonists, 
everyone would look like they they just went to the same shop. You know, yeah. Looks if to um, and I would imagine at fancy dress parties during the early sixties, uh, you know, and say, "Oh yes, I've I've come as the detective from No Hiding Place." Um, and else has, has turned up. Oh, I, I've turned up as Gideon of the Yard. Oh, we both look very similar. How embarrassing! I think one of us should leave or change. Uh, but as as the sixties went on, there was that idea of of characters who were instantly recognisable because of their costumes. So you would have Doctor Who, um, Patrick McGoon again in the um, in the in the Prisoner, uh, and there seemed to be those 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 characters that were were more recognisable because of the way they uh, the way they dressed, either you know in a very very stylish uh, way or or sometimes in a very florid way or sometimes in a very strange way. Yeah, I mean, did you get that email that I sent you with those links about the... I did, but because I went to Picnic in the Park at Beckett's Park um, to see the tail waggers display team, I haven't had a chance to look at it. All right. There's, off the top of my head, a fabulously named Masada Wilmot. Oh, you you want to have a drink with Masada. (laughs) Uh, Masada Wilmot has got quite an interesting CV, which includes both... Danger Man and the Wicker Man, oh, uh, right. okay. um, and the Prisoner. So she is responsible oh, yeah. for that Prisoner look. The, the, the blazer with the with the white white piping. Uh, yeah. The, okay. the deck shoes, the striped t-shirts. Mm. Um, mind you, the striped t-shirts and uh, the kind of Chelsea cap had already oh, made yeah. an appearance in. On Juliet Harmer in Adam Adamant. Oh right, okay. Um, I think uh, Harold Pinter used to be used to favour the Chelsea hat as well. Yes, I don't think they were quite deep. They're deep enough to suit Bob Marley, actually. Oh right, well there you go. <laughs> the story behind that, and that she always had to wear a cap, was that Sidney Newman, again having left ATV and gone to create Doctor Who. Uh, and be head of drama in uh, the BBC. Um, I think they launched the newcomers, and then Verity Lambert was given the opportunity to create Adam Adamant. The more I read about Adam Adamant, I thought, how on earth did they do it for tuppence? But one of the things about it was originally the idea had been that that they would make Sexton Blake, and this would be Sexton Blake in a block of ice woken up. And because Sexton Blake's sidekick was Tinker, uh, a young lad, Sidney Newman apparently always saw Miss Jones as a boy. And therefore, that's why she had to wear the cap. In terms of style icons, I mean, Roger Moore, where did he get his clothes from? What, his designed clothes? I mean, I can't imagine he was sat there with his little needle and thread. Um, No. Um, But I think a lot of them were his own suits, weren't they? I would, I would imagine so. Uh, uh, well, very famously, obviously, Peter Falk um, turned up in his own clothes as Columbo. Uh, and they just thought, you know what? You've nailed it. Pete, well done. You, you've nailed it. I don't think we, I don't think we have to do anything else. Uh, so sometimes, yeah, people would 
you want to make that impression of saying, yes, I think this, you know, I think this suit, this suit, this coat, this hat uh, is is saying an awful lot um, about about the character. And, uh, even though he'd done lots of historical drama, you know, I can't imagine Roger Moore like, clanking around the house in a suit of armour after Ivanhoe um, or big fur trapper's outfit from the Alaskans. Obviously, he was debonair and, and, and dapper enough uh, to be able to to carry a suit off well. Certainly. I think they were his own suits um, from my internet researches and um, trying to catch the odd quote from YouTube. And uh, there was a particular tailor uh, that they went to. You know, Michael, when he's not on camera, <laughs> he's fairly scruffy. Uh, but... Uh, you know, Dougie smartened him up. He polished up quite well. Hayward would achieve celluloid immortality with his work on a film that has become a classic of British style, The Italian Job. What happens when you're an actor, one of the things that helps is when you've done your hair in the way that it's supposed to be and you've got the makeup and then you put the clothes on and you look in the mirror and you know who you are. And I knew exactly who Charlie Croker was when I looked at myself in that suit. Much more of Michael Caine there, reminiscing about 60s tailor to the stars Douglas Haywood. The place was full of actors during the 60s. Michael Caine said it was a bit like a, a gentleman's club. You'd just turn up even if you weren't going for a fitting and there'd always be someone to go to lunch with. Oh, that's handy. So that's that's what the 60s were like. Lots of mentions of Carnaby Street, uh, etc. But yes, Roger Moore had his own particular tailor. Of course, he was no stranger to fashion because he had modelled knitwear. Yes, very famously, which is uh, you know reason why he handles a jumper so well <laughs> in some episodes. Those rare episodes of The Saint, when he has, is asked to wear a jumper, he carries it off with élan. That sort of experience doesn't leave you. Monty Berman was well known for taking the economical route because not only would Roger Moore's suits obviously fit him uh, and he'd look good in them, I'm not entirely sure whether he owned a white one, as in Teresa, which we'll come to in the uh, review show. But, of course, they needed a car, and yeah. as you've said previously... With the um, with the Volvo, where are we going to get a a smart Volvo coupe from? Because originally there were uh, they try and get sponsorship from somewhere else, and they they were a bit snooty about it. Very probably there were there were plenty of cases where people turned their noses up uh, sponsorship, even on the Avengers. I would imagine you know everyone would be after an E-type Jag. Can we have an E-type Jag, please, for this. And no, you can't. <laughs> No, you can't. We've given, up, we've given our quota away this month. I suppose it's it's making that move during the 50, late 50s, sort of early 60s, um, with with sort of more identifiable costumes, more identifiable props, uh, you know, things like Sonic Screwdriver, um, all the way through to uh, Kojak with his, with his lollipops and um, small mental cigarettes. Um, all of those sort of like little gimmicks makes the character obviously more more identifiable to viewers because like I said up until that point, you know, you could almost swap the leads round in in those heavy overcoat detective series and you just go, oh, I don't know who's solving the crime, but they've got it done. 
It's just some guy in a coat who solved it. Napoleon Solo wore a sharp suit or two. Uh, uh, again, yeah, the um, the men from Uncle uh, theirs were you know very very um, stylish uh, classy suit, pencil thin ties, um, as 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 was wont in the sixties. Yeah, again, you know, very very smartly attired um, uh, spies uh, or agents rather. But of course, some costumes are created to solve production problems, as Honor Blackman explains. In one show, I split my trousers with my bottom to the camera in the middle of a fight. And because they got rather worked up about that, and they said that this can't happen again. And uh, we've got to find something that's, that's stronger. I remember the conversation vividly between the producer and Patrick. And I was walking, I think I was learning my lines or something, and I was walking up and down, not paying much attention. And um, they were saying, we've got to have a, a tough material for her to wear. And Patrick said, what, what about suede, you know? And Leonard said, well, no, that's not good because it absorbs light. But what about the other side? What about leather? Things like the black leather, I think that was because Pat liked it. Leather I mean, I is a well-known sexual I fetish. And when you put leather, on the female form, it can have a remarkable erotic effect. And producer Brian Clemens and Patrick McNee chipping in about that revolutionary fashion choice. Now, there's one fact about the leather fighting suit that I wasn't entirely aware of, but what colour would you say Kathy Gale's leather fighting suit was? Uh, for a black and white TV, I have to guess black. There is a problem with... Oh, no, what is it? It's 405 lines. Apparently, 405 lines doesn't scan a solid black particularly well, and it makes people look fuzzy. Oh, right. Well, you wouldn't want that. Look like they were wearing a fighting in a fur coat. No hair sweater. <laughs> yeah. So that was an issue. And so it is, in fact, dark green. British racing green, one would hope. Uh, quite possibly, and maybe a bit darker than that. And of course, once you've got the leather fighting suit, you need some footwear. And obviously, there were boots. And I've shown you before the best birthday present, Evs, oh, takes its title. Bowler hats and kinky boots. It's written by Michael Richardson. It's published by Telos. Uh, the unofficial and unauthorised guide to the Avengers. It's got 740 pages without counting the index. It is a mine of information and has contributed substantially to <laughs> my show notes. Yes, the leather wear worn by Honor Blackman was the first thing to really catch the zeitgeist. People associate the Avengers with leather wear. Diana Rigg didn't like it. She didn't like leather. And when they tried to get her in, back into leather on one occasion, I don't know if it was the same thing. Sid Child, the fabulous stunt woman who um, did the female stunts for the Avengers, uh, both for Diana Rigg and for Linda Thorson, she also had a... I don't know if it was the same leather suit, but they had to stitch Diana Rigg, apparently, into the leather suit. Um, and she couldn't really do much without the seam splitting. Um, and so she didn't like that. But Alan Hughes designed these things called the Emma Peelers, which were the kind of stretch jersey and PVC 
kind of tracksuit things that you often see her wearing. It looks like you're a skier, almost like apres ski wear. There are the boots. I think he designed the boots as well. I'm not. Uh, it could be Edward Rain uh, got an on-screen credit for uh, Diana Riggs' shoes and boots. And there is that thing in the house that Jack built where she has to do an emergency stop on the way to the big, dark science fiction house. Um, and you see her white boots with the black stripe slam on the brakes and uh, apparently lots of young women thought i want some boots like that uh, i'm going to the boot shop uh, and that's what happened so they they did a lot of uh times originally the plan for when they moved to film was they would uh, get gene muir to do it and Gene Muir supplied some of the clothes, but they couldn't actually provide a range in time for the production. And there was a fashion advisor who used to work on Queen's magazine, I think, she, um, called Andrew Hearn, and she recommended John Bates. And because it was in black and white, and because op art, optical art, was one of the uh, things that was du jour, he invented all these fabulous black and white costumes um but the first thing you see is mrs peel makes an appearance in a snakeskin print jacket which is quite striking you know you're in different territory mm. uh, i guess you're know, trying to emulate your you know your favorite tv characters that's through through the way they dress because at the time there would be um, no promotional tie-in clothing. Yes, except that this is possibly the first example of commercial tie-ins within British television, because Jean Muir obviously gets a mention. Um, John Bates had a fashion line, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, but my guess is Jean Varon, because um, otherwise, it, you know, the uninitiated, if you just read it, it looks like Jean Varon. I would say Jean Varon feels um, much, better. <laughs> much better. Well, for Diana Rigg, I wanted to do a wardrobe. So when I saw the script, I could then say exactly what she was going to wear for that scene, uh, for that particular episode. There's nothing worse than going into fight scenes and having wrinkles and creases going on all over the place. I mean, you want the body to look really athletic. As I said, he becomes so busy after the black and white episode, he didn't really get the chance to go on and design anything for the colour episodes. So then you get Alan Hughes. We were always pursuing the, the new 60s Britain. I mean, we had to put Diana Rigg in a miniskirt and we made three episodes before it was launched on the market. And we had to take that chance. Will it catch on? And of course it did. And there were fashion shoots, and then Patrick McNee does something with Twiggy, and there are the kind of Mrs. Peel Avenger-style Emma Peeler things with the berets. Obviously, he doesn't know an Avenger when he sees one. So that was a, a big publicity thing. When they later moved on into colour, they hooked up with Pierre Cardin. And I'm never quite sure whether that works or not. There obviously was a, a problem about actors' weights because when it came to Linda Thorson and who I think the Americans claimed was overweight, I used to think, what? 
Um, uh, Patrick McNee also apparently was. So they were put on uh, uh, crash diets and um, slimming pills or speed. So, um, I would imagine the same wouldn't have applied, though, to Patrick Newell, my dear old Uncle Patrick. Yes, Patrick Newell at the time hadn't experienced the crash diet. I was trying to establish what exactly Pierre Cardin was responsible for because there are some jackets in the colour episodes that just don't fit Patrick McNee. I just think, what? Is that, that just hangs off him. It's not the wasted thing that's uh, terribly smart. So there were some chops and changes, but they were trying to codify the look that he'd invented. So at least they didn't decide to put him in flares, which apparently he rejected out of hand for the new Avengers. Gareth Hunt took up the challenge to that full on. Uh, the times where his trousers were so flared, you doubted whether he was wearing shoes or whether he had feet. <laughs> yes, and I think Patrick Muneer probably had enough of bell bottoms in the Navy. There were other tie-ins. The Strange Report. Oh, right, OK. Was it second-hand taxis in The Strange <laughs> Report? Is that what it was? I always feel it's a massively inconvenient vehicle. Anthony Quayle to be driving around in. I think Anthony Quayle did wear a suit and occasionally probably a tweed jacket. Mm. But, of course, there's Annika Wills. Who's meant to be a model, isn't she? She, she has, she has modelling history. In the and, and a painter as well. Yeah. But also, she was a dab hand with a sewing machine. So whoever they managed to do the design with, the, the deal with, the clothes just didn't work for her. Um, so she made her own. And I wore these pink trousers. I never forget those because I made those. I made a lot of my clothes, actually. Because what happened was they had some sort of a deal with the guy in, in Carnaby Street um, for all the clothes. And I wasn't wearing that kind of rubbish <laughs> you know and because all my clothes were my own clothes which were Ozzy Clark and Alice Pollock and Quorum and and Mary Quant so the thing was that in my dressing room I had my own sewing machine and I was sewing I was sewing up my own clothes and making my own clothes as well they used to come and knock on the door and say Annika have you got time to come down on the set because <laughs> I'd be so busy I remember going into Baz Berger's office and saying you can't put Harry Fox, you can't because these are not the clothes. It says Annika Wills' clothes by Harry Fox, which they weren't. That's Annika Wills from the Strange Report DVD box set special features section. Mm. As the 60s turn into the early 70s, the persuaders. What would your expert opinion be about Roger's fashion sense for the persuaders? Um, well, I was bought, I think I've told you this before, I was bought as a um, birthday present many years ago um, when there used to be something called the morning after which was the official persuaders uh, fan club you could um, named after the first episode uh, and you could join the morning after this is about like the early 90s i think uh so it was it was less social media um, and more uh, photocopied onto coloured paper and folded in half. Thing. There wasn't a big load of tie-ins, but there'd be all those little bits and pieces which you'd, which you'd enjoy uh, um, so much. And the idea being is that, you know, you would have two big stars, Tony Curtis and Roger Moore, um, each with their distinctive styles. Obviously, Roger designed his own clothing, uh, and Tony Curtis always seeming to wear gloves, uh, which, uh, yeah, it did seem quite fascinated. 
by always yeah always wearing always wearing gloves and those very short um brown leathery jackets you look terrific look wonderful terrific really nice and that's odd considering i'm exhausted exhausted <laughs> you'll never look better in your life that jacket is a nice cut kid so you know if you've got two people um obviously the avengers is slightly easier because you've got a male and female double act um but the persuaders you've got two blokes and you can't have them dressed uh, the same there has to be that distinctive you know characteristic distinctive look a distinctive style and obviously because lord brett sinclair is a member of england's landed gentry uh, he can afford to dress in blazers with brass buttons probably with an anchor on them he did also wear um casual shirts that seem to be missing a top button or two yes uh, almost as if um, haphazardly at the shirt factory in malaya uh, they've not been sewn on they'd, or, or realised that actually it's probably not going to be used. Um, still, at that late stage, you know, during the 70s, I think we were probably seeing, um, as Margaret Mitchell um, says, you know, it's a civilization gone with the wind and we were probably seeing the last of the cravats. Yes, thankfully, I think. <laughs> I've, ne- I've never owned a cravat. I think that is is perhaps less to do with my age and more to do with my fingers and thumbs aspects. I've never been quite certain how how one ties a cravat. Uh, I actually, in my early teens, had one. Um, oh, get you. Well, it was. It wasn't five hundred. It wasn't brand new. I forget where it came from. I think it was discovered at the back of a drawer. It's not something my father would have worn. And when he caught me in it a couple of times, I think he started to worry. Oh, I guess apprehension. Well, it depends. Uh, I mean, forward-facing cravats, those seem to be okay. Um, But maybe that that kind of bias or prejudice may have been the cravat wearing at the side which Roger Moore seemed to do. But he could pull it off. He could do. Um, but supposing you are an international crime fighter wearing a cravat, I would have said there's a health and safety issue there. Yeah, because it, it's something that a villain could grab hold of. Uh, whereas, you know, within British Secret Service, um, most agents wearing a type, it would just be clip-on, you know, like the police do. So if a villain grabs hold of it, it, it just, all they're left with is like a paisley polyester tie in their hand and then you've still got both hands to give them like a forkney one at the bracket but yes the the the, the cravat very difficult very difficult to pull off maybe there's going to be a mini revival don't know but there don't appear to be many tv series of that ilk that are you know either being remade reimagined or, or perhaps there's, you know, there's not that big opportunity out there anymore. Both you and I know, as dedicated followers of fashion, how difficult it is to create an impression being a bloke, yes. yeah. but yet retain some measure of dignity. <laughs> yes, yeah, it can be can be quite difficult sometimes. You, you might accidentally find yourself creating a look that you weren't looking for. Like the, the duffel coat and Crocs. Duffel coat and Crocs. Um, I used to have um, uh, tartan trousers. Um, I remember I used to have like a kind of like one of those action adventure shirts with like the two pockets there and like a, a button down epaulets. 
um, again with kind of like beige trousers and you described me at film school looking like Ernie Bilko <laughs> um, and I realised oh yeah maybe I do uh, maybe I do. oh yeah maybe I did was that the look I was going for don't know I do wear glasses though yes I apologise for that <laughs> um, I had forgotten <laughs> so yeah as, as you know as characters became uh, perhaps more identifiable I suppose, you know, going back to, to you know, the 40s where you had like the Veronica Lake hairstyle, you know, the peekaboo hairstyle. Um, every once in a while there will be um, a look uh, where all of a sudden, you know, it, it becomes, wow, that's that's the kind of look I want to go for. And, and I think maybe the 60s was was that the, the first big time when, when people wanted to dress um, very similarly to people either on the small screen or the big screen. I'm going to pose this as a question. <sighs> Taking the Avengers, but you know, obviously other uh, action series and TV series are available. Mm. Did they actually set the trends or did they just pick up on them? Uh, I, I would say they, they were probably the bellwethers of setting the style or, or maybe it's that thing that that little almost like that little niche influence that you you sort of tell you what i was walking down carnaby street the other day and i saw someone in a bowler hat bowler hat oh they must have been out of their mind and then all of a sudden because you're seeing more and more of it then you see more and more of it out and, you know out and about when you know people choose to right i'm going to start wearing this because i i've seen it on the telly of course bowler hats i mean were originally sort of the standard wear for clerks in the city and, and mm -hmm. such like they do get um a revival in uh, the clockwork orange clockwork orange yeah um our friend jake from film school jake shaw um i'm sure still has a bowler hat every once in a while he'll post a picture on face space and yeah he's wearing his he's wearing his bowler hat it has a fairly close cropped head doesn't he he does um, i believe the expression is bald <laughs> Yes, I mean, it's uh, definitely a good look, unless it's a Rafe Fiennes in a movie that shall not be named of the late oh, 90s. Yeah, but, uh, just cut that bit, <laughs> cut that bit, steady that bit out. Yeah, why doesn't anyone wear a bowler hat, or hats in general now, at least men? I see someone wearing a hat, particularly a wide-brimmed hat. For some reason, I automatically get in my head that I'm looking at someone famous. Oh, right. I don't know why. I don't know why it's just, and, and sometimes when I have seen people in, uh, you know, wide brimmed hat, you just go, "Cool, that looks like," and you realise actually, no, it is, uh, it is someone famous. So, in, in tiny percentage wise, I sometimes am right. I was talking to to my brother who lives in Italy. So obviously they've been having a bit of a heat wave, and he was at the opera the other night in Verona, um, and I said, "What?" You know, I said, "Kieran, you've always had a little bit of difficulty in, in finding a suitable hat." Uh, you know, he doesn't want to wear a baseball cap to look like a touristy type, and he's never been able to carry off a baseball cap. He does have, you know, like a strawy type Panama hat, uh, but I was thinking maybe one of those like rakish um, Frank Sinatra late 50s, early 60s, almost like a little pork pie hat that you might be able to, to get away with. Obviously, in a lot of movies with certain italian associations let's put it that way that kind of straw pork pie hat would definitely be something it's also 
I'm trying to think the last time there was a hat craze. Um, would have been two-tone, actually, with the pork pie hat. Yes. Uh, um, yeah, two-tone. Madness, uh, selector. Yeah, there are those. But at the moment, um, uh, another big revival, flat caps from Peaky Blinders. Oh, right. Okay. Peaky Blinders. Uh, my friend Carol at work, um, her wedding, her um, well, husband-to-be in a couple of hours. Husband-to-be Mark was attired in a very, very um, lovely dark blue suit um, with a Peaky Blinders motif. So he had a flat flat cap. So, yeah, flat caps um, for, you know, Peaky Blinders. Hopefully without razor blades in them. That'd be, that'd be taken a bit too far. That would be really dangerous as well. I guess those TV series that would have have style at the forefront you know suppose sex and the city would be a really obvious example this is what we want to go for yeah um, i remember uh, in the early 90s um, i needed a new raincoat and trudging around leads to uh, the various raincoat um, selling establishments and basically i just wanted to look like i was on the x files <laughs> we can't say that in a shop you know, you have to find out the number of pockets, whether it's got a zip-out lining that separates. You know, has it got a belt? Is it buttons or is it stud? You know, how's it, how's it works? Is it double-breasted? Rather than just go, is it going to make me look like Agent Fox Mulder, please? Um, which, which was a shame. But thankfully, the Chris Carter collection at CNA um, enabled me not only um, for business meetings to have me... Um, the agent Mulder, um, but also to have like a, a rough urban coat to look like Frank Black from Millennium. I did manage to pick up a jacket, which is known in our house as the Hitman jacket, because, oh, it, okay. uh, because it looks like something from the Bourne identity. <laughs> of course, if you're a Hitman in the Bourne identity, you're going to come to a sticky end. I'm going to see the final credits crawl. No, but it is quite useful if you want something that's waterproof, showerproof, is quite light yeah. in those kind of medium, early spring, mid-autumn sort of times. Yes, where it's, it's rather chilly, but not necessarily too damp. I suggest that actually that is probably the weather that um, exists in most television series. It's <laughs> set in England. Right, I think that probably, for the moment, brings to an end our tiptoe through the hall of mirrors of the fashion world and the various tie-ins um what i will just say is that the information that i have gathered has come from several sources i've mentioned uh michael richardson's book there's also a couple of uh, videos available on youtube where people from cult tv talk about their fashion and let's face it it is cult tv and that's one of the reasons why the tv is cult is because of the fashions so if people want to know more they can seek those out on youtube there is an entire website i'll put a link to it which is devoted to the avengers and goes through every single outfit in each episode in minute detail and that was even too much for me <laughs> Oh, right, crikey, back away now. Yes, there's only so many hours in the day you can waste, isn't there? So, thank you very much to John Bates, the man who designed those iconic costumes for Diana Rigg playing Mrs. Peel uh, in the Black and White Avengers. 
My co-host has been David Newell. I'm Guy Morgan. This has been episode 10 of Rose Tinted Black and White Television. Our review shows can be caught on our SoundCloud channel. That's the Soundstage North SoundCloud channel. Until next week, when we'll try and find something different to talk about, we bid you adios. Everybody's going for those kinky boots, kinky boots. Kinky boots, it's a manly kind of fashion that you borrowed from the roots. Borrowed from the boots. Kinky boots, fashion magazines say wear them. And you rush to obey like the women in a harem. Full length, half length, fully fashion cast length. Brown boots, black boots, patent leather jack boots. Low boots, high boots, lovely lanky thigh boots. We all dig those boots.